Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. You just told me you were tired of me. You're so fickle, Clancy. My name is Mary, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here at um, the Woodstock uh, of the South in Georgia. And I was in Georgia a few weeks ago, as you heard, and I just love Georgia. And someone told me I'm wearing the bulldog colors today. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. You've been absolutely wonderful. You've really been a joy of spending time with you. And I'd like to thank Dick and Barbara for inviting me here to participate in this. And all, all of my teachers are here. And I have learned so much today as I continually learn from them because I know the people here and I know that they truly live this program. And uh, it's, 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 uh, it's wonderful for me. I sit, I listen, I absorb like a sponge, and I hope to carry back and pass on to my sponsees what I have learned here. And I'm doing steps eight and nine. And steps eight and nine are concerned primarily with relationships. And relationships have always been a great problem for me. Um, in the seventh step, it says this is where we make the change in our attitude which permits us, with humility, to move out from ourselves towards others. My problem was that I was always encased in self. My problem was that I was self-obsessed. There was a poet called Anne Sexton who committed suicide in 1970. And I used to live by one of her poems. It said, I have a body and I cannot escape from it. I would like to fly out of my mind, but that is out of the question. It is written in the tablet of human destiny that I am stuck here in this human form. That being so, I'd like to call attention to my problem. My problem was being utterly and totally encased in self, to the point where I was suffocated with self, and being suffocated with self gave me panic attacks. And the reason I was having the panic attacks was because I could not bear myself. And there was no way to get out of it. And it was dreadful. And I did not know that alcohol would release me from self. Um, in dealing with personal relationships and knowing that that is my problem, knowing that I have the seeming inability to form a true partnership with another human being, I did not know that. I just knew that I never, ever got along with anybody for any amount of time. I have been married four times, none of them successfully. Um, I have a little story I share on this. My fourth husband had a stroke. And in order for me to bring him home, I had to put him in a behavioral center for a while. And I was about... Ten years sober then. And the psychiatrist said they wanted to see me. So I went in to see the psychiatrists. 
they said to me, you're an alcoholic, your husband's an alcoholic. We can't communicate with him because he can't talk and he can't understand the spoken word. We wondered if you would take some psychological tests <laughs> so that we would uh, get an insight into the nature of your relationship. Do not ever take a psychological test <laughs> at 10 years sobriety. Anyway, they gave me three booklets, and I examined these booklets, and I took them home, and I filled them out to the best of my ability, and I handed them in. And a few days later, I got a call. They said they'd like to see me. So I went into their office, and there was three psychiatrists sitting behind a desk with a tape recorder. And they said to me, um, we've had the results of your test, and uh, we'd like to know who's looking after you now. <laughs> I said, no one. I'm 10 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a wonderful sponsor. They said, well, what medication are you on? I said, I haven't been on medication since the 10th of August, 1984, my dry date. He said, well, this doesn't look good. <laughs> what we see here is not good. And you're walking around unmedicated. I explained to them that I really didn't have to explain to them anything because I said, I, I usually have, well, I, I'm a lot better now that I have more years sobriety, but then I was still very um, reactive. <laughs> and I asked them to turn off the tape recorder and I said to them that they will never understand the illness of alcoholism. I said, with all your learning, you have been unable to help people like me. I said, I've spent years in psychiatric institutions and mental institutions. I said, and I know that I always didn't tell you the truth. I said, but you do not have the answer to everything. And I don't need any medication. I don't need any psychiatry. I suffer from an illness called alcoholism. Afterwards, I understood what they were trying to do. There was true concern for me. But you see, when I uh, read the eighth step, and I realized it was concerned with relationships. I, I absolutely loved the promise. I loved the promise that the ultimate purpose of doing all of this was to fit myself to be of maximum use to God and my fellows. Because I had always been so useless. You know, my poor mother. Oh, first, let me tell you a little bit about my background. My father was a Franciscan monk. I know. He left the monastery before I was conceived. But my father had gone in to be a, a Franciscan monk at age 15 because of his father's alcoholism. And that was his way of getting away in those days. He lived in England. And um, he stayed in the monastery for quite a few years. And then he had some theological dispute and was thrown out the, with, by the Franciscans. 
just like I was thrown out at age 15 by the Franciscan nuns. <laughs> we have that in common. Um, my mother was president of the Union of Catholic Mothers for the Glasgow chapter. My mother and my father did nothing wrong ever that I could see. When my father left the um, monastery, he joined the army. He was one of the first British um, um, troops into Greece. Stood beside my mother's brother, watched him being blown apart. Suffered injuries. Was also in Dunkirk. He never complained to me. I never heard him talk about anybody. My mother had saw many of her family killed. And I never had a bad word to say about anybody. And yet my life, from as far back as I can remember, was one of absolutely no morals and a conscience tinged by my own sick rationalization. So I don't know where I got that from. Now, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me I wasn't responsible for the things I did when I was drinking, but I would have to accept the consequences. And the consequences for me were enormous. But I also had to, in this eighth step, go way back to before I was drinking. Way back. That's what it tells me. Because in doing this, I will get an insight into my personality, into what makes me tick. What a revelation that was. The only thing bad that ever happened to me and my family was that my, when I was 10, my grandfather died. And I loved my grandfather very, very much. He understood me, he knew me, and he loved me unconditionally. <laughs> it's a funny thing, too. He used to call me the young Catherine from Wuthering Heights. And I thought that was wonderful. Until many years later, a psychiatrist let me read a treatise on the narcissistic qualities of the young Catherine from Wuthering Heights. <laughs> and I remember Bob Marley saying to me many years later, when he was taking my inventory, <laughs> he said I was a hedonist and a narcissist and I didn't care about anything but myself. I, so I have no explanation into why I was the way I was from I was 10 years old. But from when I was 10 years old, I was creating havoc in my family life, in my school life, and in any life around me. I was stealing when I didn't have to steal. I was lying when I didn't have to lie. And I became aggressive and I became a person who did not attract friends or keep them for very long. When I went off on my merry way into adulthood, I carried all these things with me. And I also carried this beginning sense of self that was unique. And I truly rationalized everything I did by thinking that I was different. And Dr. Silkworth, I remember reading something, a conversation between Bill Wilson and Dr. Silkworth. I think it is reprinted in um, the book. I'll remember it in a minute, but it's in an AA book. And uh, the language of the heart. 
And in that book, Silkworth was saying to Bill, of course we know that better, better morals would help alcoholics in their recovery. But telling them that's not going to do anything. You're going to have to have a spiritual program that will get them to that place. And in the doctor's opinion, of course, he says that prior to the formation in 1935 of Alcoholics Anonymous, him and other psychiatrists realized that alcoholics needed some kind of moral psychology, but they didn't know how to apply it. And certainly that is what I have had in here. I have had moral retraining through the spiritual fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have also become more dependent. I have become um, um, more giving, and I have become more understanding. My mother used to say to me that I was about as dependable as a broken stick. <laughs> and that was absolutely and completely true. I was about as dependable as a broken stick. I was so into self, you could not trust me to do anything. So the eighth step being concerned with personal relationships um, and my true inability, realizing my inability to have ever formed a partnership with another human being. My alcoholism was all based on that. Because, you see, when I drank, I took myself out of myself and I didn't need you anymore. And if you were there, you were just parts of my own drama. You had no personality to me. You were just something that belonged there that I could act out a part with. I, had, I knew nothing about empathy, nothing about caring. Those were all foreign concepts to me. Now when I look back at her today, that person, I don't understand her. I, I cannot believe that that was ever me. And yet, given the right circumstances today, for a minute or two, I can go back into that place when I feel threatened, when I feel tired, when I feel sensitive. But immediately I want to get myself out of there because I know what it is to my soul. When I started writing this list, I never had a proper way to describe it because it seemed overwhelming. And then at the beginning of the year, I saw the pictures of the tsunami in Japan. And when I saw that tsunami, and I saw the sludge and the wreckage that had left in its wake, I thought, my God, it looks unfixable. And that was how my past looked to me. It looked like it was unfixable. I could never, ever fix it. Fortunately, I had a wonderful sponsor. I had a wonderful sponsor when I first came in in Edmonton, Carol. And then when I moved to Toronto, I had Rini. One of my great Wes, you know Rini. Rini died three years ago with 53 years sobriety. And both of those sponsors sat me down at various times when I would be overwhelmed with some of the stuff that was coming up for me in sobriety. And they'd pat my hand and tell me how I could fix it. 
and the things I could do. They said, but let's get this in a list. It was so important. Yes, I had my fifth-step list, my four-step list, but it wasn't enough. I needed another list. Because everybody that I had harmed, I had no resentment against. They just happened to be there. And I harmed many people. And they all sat right there in my head, and that was one of the reasons I could never get sober. Because if I get sober, I get conscious. And if I get conscious, I remember the stuff I have done to people. And if I don't remember the people, the things I have done to people, when I see them, they remind me of the things I have done to them. And then it ends up with me attacking them because I don't want to hear that stuff. And it is never-ending. So gradually, little by little, piece by piece, bit by bit, I was taken away to write these things down and come to some understanding without blame. They said, it is so important for you that you take the word blame out of your vocabulary and throw it away. It makes absolutely no sense to blame anybody. You have to look at you. I remember Rene saying to me, how much do you want this thing? I said, I want it with every fiber of my being. I want it because I do not want to die with all of this. And you see, it's all soul work. That same sludge that I saw after the tsunami had left it in its wake, it refers to that in our big book about the devastation and damage we have left in our wake, in our walk through life. And I think about it all as soul work, because I remember the old timers, they said this is a soul sickness. Using those same images of the tsunami, one would think, if they were a half-measure person the way I used to be, just put a big load of cement over it, cover it up, and plant a new, put new buildings on top. But you know, if you do that, eventually the cement begins to sink, and whatever is beneath it comes up. It's like when you grow in a garden. If you've had old plants in there, you've got to take all the dirt out, because if you plant new ones in there, they will begin to intermingle. And I didn't want that. I wanted a new start and a new way of being. Um, in writing down my list, I had to put my eldest son, Richard, and that was a great shock to me when I was writing this down. You see, when my son was 11, he wrote to his father and said, Mom's bringing us back from Canada to Jamaica, and I don't want to be with Mom anymore. She's going to kill my brother and I because she drives drunk. He said, but don't tell Mom. So when I got back to Jamaica, and the children's father asked if they could have them for a week, my eldest son had already planned with him never to come back to me again. And I had some... Resentment. <laughs> My poor son. I did not think until I had the mea culpa. The mea culpa that to me was a gift of grace. That made me look at me 
I never thought, what a decision for that poor child at 11 to have to make between his father and me. No, I just thought, how could he do that to me? So I had to put his name down too. I had to put down people who were dead because it doesn't just say the living, it also said those who are dead. So now I had my list and um, I had to make direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. But I am prepared. I am prepared. I am willing. It says that I am fitting myself to be of maximum use to God and my fellows. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do the work. I told you I had been married four times. Twice sober, twice unconscious. <laughs> the husband I married in Jamaica, I was sober when I married him. I wasn't drinking when I married him. And uh, he didn't know who he'd married. You know, as I say, he married a figment of my imagination. <laughs> and um, it wasn't long into that marriage when everything I had brought with me, plus the close proximity of this individual, plus having a child, and plus feeling as unworthy as I did because I had... You see, it's the same thing as you can't plant new seed on old ground without clearing it out. I thought I could go to Jamaica and have a whole new life without cleaning up all the stuff I had done back then. And it was impossible, you know. You keep changing people, places, and things, but you never think about changing yourself. And I hadn't had a drink yet. And I hated myself. I needed a drink. I needed a drink really badly. You know, I often think someone should have gone to my mother when I was born and said to her, Mrs. Gallagher, you've given birth to an alcoholic. <laughs> Sad but true. Put a little liquor in her bottle and you will, for a little while, stave off the bizarre behavior. <laughs> that will drive you insane. But nobody ever said that to my poor mother. You know, and as I say, she spent her entire life pretending to read a paper, staring at me like that. <laughs> and I used to say to her, what are you looking at? She'd say, I don't know where you came from. <laughs> my first job, after I was thrown out of the convent, I cooked the books. I didn't even know about cooking books. Nobody ever told me how to cook books. I just decided that this advertising agency was not paying me enough money. And I had an intuitive thought <laughs> that if I made up some names of customers and mailed them out refunds, <laughs> I'd, be paying, I'd be paid what I deserved. Of course, they had an accountant come in. They always spoil it. <laughs> There's always somebody. It's either an accountant or a sponsor, you know. <laughs> and because I was so young, they didn't call the police. 
He called my mother. And my mother was full of shame. And then, three months later, I met a Protestant. I don't know if you know anything about Glasgow, but we have two gods in Glasgow, and they both have football teams. <laughs> one is Celtic, one is Rangers. And a lot of us are, uh, there's a lot of religious bigotry. And because she wouldn't let me date this Protestant, I wasn't 16 yet, I told her I hated her, pushed her down the stairs, and left. And she couldn't find me for two weeks. But her and her aunts came and they found me. I'm 15. I'm not even 16. My mother's heart was broken. My brother, who was such a good boy, he was watching all this, and I never ever thought what it did to his life. So there I had been thrown out of the convent at 15, thrown out my first job at 15. I was on the road to destruction, and I hadn't had a drink yet. So this is all the stuff I'm taking with me. I'm taking all of this stuff with me into my new marriage. It's not going to work. I haven't spoken about half the things I did, because I did try and clean it up by my act. I did. You know, I went into nursing, and I won't even tell you what I did in nursing. <laughs> but it was not honest. Um, and it was always a, a bafflement to me, because I, I used to feel sorry for all the old people. I used to nurse. And on my days off, I'd go visit them and help myself to the change out the purse. I had no, I had this part of me that felt sorry for people and this part of me that had no moral conscience. I hadn't had a drink here. So I am not one of those people who started behaving badly while drinking. No. That was me from before, and I, nobody taught me this stuff. How am I going to fix all that up? How am I going to lift my head up high? Because it is that past, combined with alcohol, that took me to the place I ended up, which was the street. I never felt I deserved anything better. It took me to a dark, dark place. I think about that place from time to time when there's no light there. When Scott Fitzgerald said, in a real dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. And if you read St. John of the Cross about the real dark night of the soul, it's a dreadful place to be. So can there be redemption for someone like me? There is redemption. I can be joyous, happy, and free by taking a drink. And that was one of the great miracles for me because nothing in the world had ever made me feel at ease in my own skin because I did not deserve to feel at ease in my own skin because of the life I had led. So when I took my first drink at age 25, it was magic. I had found a solution. 
I had found a solution and a solution that is an innocuous looking fluid that was to destroy everything once more of value in my life. But what magic it is. It's magic. I have no other word for it. Alcohol to me was magic. Alcohol gave me a change of personality. It made me someone better, gooder, without a past. And made me able to mix with people without feeling less than. It was a wonderful thing. And of course it didn't last. It did not last. So all I had all of this on my list. The other thing I had on my list... <laughs> you know, Rini had said to me once when I had to go back to Jamaica, she said, go back to Jamaica and make amends to the island. <laughs> <laughs> why would I have to make amends to the island? Well, Rini knew why I had to make amends to the island. She knew about the havoc I had created in Jamaica. So not only did I have people, places, things, I had Jamaica. I had my dead parents. But you see, the great joy about all of this was that I was beginning to feel the healing. I was sitting in the rooms and I was listening to people who were telling me honestly about some of the things they had done. They were telling me that I wasn't as bad. Maybe they said, you know, you were sick. Even before you drank, you were emotionally unbalanced, let's say. Once in a while I'd say, but why? What caused me to behave like this? And they say, it doesn't matter. We have a solution for you. Just write down what you did, admit to it, and go and make amends where you can. So I had my list, and I was going out to make amends where I could. And what kind of harm did I do people? I suffer from an illness that's mental, physical, and spiritual. Therefore, the type of damage I did was mental, physical, and spiritual. And how do I mentally damage people? I mentally damage them because I play mind games. When I was not well, I would play mind games. And I would confuse people. And I would make people worry about me. And I would make people want to react to me in their minds. Physically, I never hit my children. But physically, I had done some damage because I became an obnoxious drunk. I became a physical drunk. Spiritually, of course. Because I have an amazing ability to make benign, well-adjusted people behave like morons. <laughs> It's just a talent I had. <laughs> there was also a situation that I had with men. I um because of where I had been at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach.
There were things that had gone on because I'm a powerless woman. That in the light of sobriety, maybe even before, I felt such shame and so dirty. Dirty. Irredeemably so. And I had a great hate for men. Forgetting the things I had done to men. I had caused some of my husband's physical damage. You know, I tell the story from time to time about my first husband when he used to lecture me on my drunken behavior. And he'd say to me, if you fall asleep tonight, I'll kill you. I used to say to him, if you fall asleep, and he'd he'd fall asleep and wake up and jump and become very nervous. And he became very nervous around me. And one night he did fall asleep and I hit him over the head with a piece of mahogany. Mahogany is not a light wood. You know, he has a little scar here. My second husband was a very passive human being. I'm not going to get into what I did to these guys because it's stuff that I I cannot believe I did today, but it was because of how I felt. And I had all of that stuff there. So yes, this happened to me. That happened to me. And when I came into AA, the men in Edmonton, Alberta, used to tell me to hold my head up high. (laughs) They used to say to me, Mary, we love you. We'll never do you any harm. I remember saying to my sponsor, Carol, my first sponsor, I was never 13 stepped. She said, do you remember what you looked like when you came in? Now, all this sludge and jumbo that I had inside of me, and my parents are dead, and I'm not sober yet. Well, here's what I did just before. And my son and I were talking about this the other day. I was telling him that I had been down to the Georgia prepaid, and how nice Georgia is. I said, you know, son, I was, I happened to talk about that time at Christmas. And for you who don't know it, because it's ingrained in me, it is what I thought about when I knelt down and said the third step prayer with the girl and never drank again. The image that came into my mind's eye was Christmas when I had gone down to Jamaica to see my children. I'd just been out of the mental institution a little while. We called down and said I could have my children for a week in a hotel. My sons were so excited. They told me the presents they wanted. And I got on the plane in Edmonton, got off in Toronto, bought a bottle of vodka, landed in Kingston, Jamaica. So drunk I couldn't even walk. And my sons were there at the airport to meet me. And the person who brought them said, you won't be seeing your mother this time, sons. And led them away. 
and they were looking at me over the shoulder with the eyes of the child of an alcoholic. And I had to go back all the way to Edmonton without seeing them. And before I couldn't, I couldn't leave Jamaica. I didn't, I was inert. And I called my mother, not knowing my mother was dying of ovarian cancer. And my mother said to me, think of your ancestors. Think of the women in your family who have overcome tremendous heartache and get on the plane. My mother, I got so, I didn't drink and I went to see her before she died. And she died on my 40th birthday. And for the two weeks I was with my mother, she never drank. I never drank. But I sure drank when I got on the plane when I left her. And I know it's my mother's prayers why I'm standing here today. My father, now this seems, tri I'm, what I'm telling you is the miracle of the transformation of these steps. Because there's no road here from where I am coming from. With the things I've done and the people I have loved and hurt. My father, when he retired, woke up one morning when I was living on the street. And he said to my mother, I don't know where my lassie is. I don't know where my grandchildren are. I'm having trouble breathing. And he went out and dropped dead on the street at the same time I was living on the street. These are the things I have in my life that I carry with me on this journey. And now I'm sober. Now I'm not drinking and I have to get rid of it. And that was why I did a fourth and a fifth step very quickly. I did the sixth step. Seventh step. My creator, I am now willing that you are all, how can have all of me good and bad. Please remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go from here to do your bidding. Amen. I believe the words. I believe you. You have given me a message of hope. You have told me that there is a way back for me. So I am going out now after I have my list and I'm going to make amends. How do I make amends to my parents? Well, I asked someone who also had dead parents. <laughs> we were wonderful, wonderful people in AA. But some of us are a little crazy. And of course, like attracts like. I thought this guy was a genius. So anyway, we sat down and I wrote a letter to my mother and I wrote a letter to my father telling them all the things I had done and the great wish I had for the person I would have loved to have been for my wonderful parents who had never done anything but love me and that I believe died early because of me, that I never gave any joy to. And I wrote on the outside of the envelopes to Mrs. Gallagher, care of the Angels, Glasgow, Scotland. To Mr. Gallagher, care of the Angels, Glasgow, Scotland. And I posted them. 
And I can imagine a, a postman in Glasgow, Scotland, saying, another crazy alcoholic making amends. <laughs> <laughs> and then Clancy had given me something, you know. Clancy said, help old people across the road whether they want to go or not. <laughs> So my sons, I would go up and down to Jamaica sober and they would come up to me and I would be an open book to them. The great damage I had done my children is immeasurable, you know. Today they love me very deeply and they are in my life. But making the amends was a very, I had to be an open book. When my sons were still living with me alone, in Alberta, with no adults around. I had brought them from Jamaica, and I was so drunk I should never have been allowed to leave the island. I took them to Alberta. And I used to drive with them drunk in the car. And they'd wake up and see me lying drunk. And sometimes I'd bring men home, because I am an alcoholic woman. And... um my sons would wake up sometimes through the night and I didn't know they had woken up. And the next day they would say to me, Mom, who was that man who was here last night? And I'd say to them, you were dreaming. I made them question their reality. So I had, I had to sit down and be an open book to my boys. My eldest son spoke nonstop for 20 years. <laughs> He said, Mom, I always knew you were sick. I knew that you loved us. But I always knew you were sick. He spoke, he, he, you know, he would call and every day and talk to me. And then they lived with me for a while. That was part of the amends too. I brought them up to Canada. But he talked it out. And he is the one that said to his father, Last Christmas, in fact, Dad, I used to look in my mother's eyes and there was nobody there. But what has happened to my mother in these 25 years is nothing less than transformative. My youngest son would never talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it. But everything with my youngest son sits right here. He tells me, Mom, I love you so much. And he does. But, you know, a little story I'll tell is just two years ago. He sent me a first-class ticket to go to Aruba, because that's where he lives. And we had a wonderful, wonderful holiday together. And the night before I was leaving, he's sitting with his back to me, having dinner. And I look outside, and my little granddaughter, who's seven, is out there, and my grandson, who's four, they're playing outside. I said, Mark, don't you think you should bring the children in? It's getting dark outside. And without turning around, he said, So where was I when I was seven, Mom? I said, Son, what can I say to you? Because he won't talk. I have given him every... But I know this today. As my sons get older, and one is 43 and one is 39, they phone me almost every day. They need me more now, and I'm so grateful to God that I am sober. 
They need me more now because they seem emotionally to need that affirmation that we can give each other as adults. It's amazing to me. It's an amazing thing. And I'm so grateful for what I have been given. Who knew that the behavior I had before drinking, plus the sludge that I caused while I was drinking, who knew there would be a way out? Bill and Bob. Bill and Bob in these steps. This is a, this is a miracle. Isn't this a miracle that we have? Are we not the most fortunate people in the world? I don't ever want it to change. Do you want it to change? Not me. Because I am still a very imperfect human being, but I have been given a way to maintain and grow my spiritual life so that I never have to go back to where I was, which was like going through a sewer in a glass-bottom boat. That was my life. That was my life. When I was uh, about eight years sober, um, my sons, who were in Jamaica at the time, had been kicked out of their father's home for misbehaving. And they were living with um, their granny. And I was with Rini, and we were up at a cottage, and Rini says, you've got to go back to Jamaica. Your children need you. You're eight, nine years sober now. And Rini and I were at this beautiful cottage, and I had been feeling really good. I had was doing great in sobriety. I had a great job. I had a great life. I had gotten married. It hadn't worked out very well, but we were friends. And um, I didn't want anything to change, but Rini says, it's time for you to go back to be with your children. And I began to get afraid, and I began to shake, thinking about it. And I began to get very cold. And Rini started rubbing my hands and saying, look, she said, I have never, ever been in a mental institution. She, you know, she spoke like young spoke. When young, that brilliant man said he's never saw a case of alcoholism recover, Rini was saying to me with all her humility, I have never had a mental illness. I have never lived on the street. I don't know how you're feeling. I know this will be difficult for you. She said, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you Clancy's number. And when you go to Jamaica, call Clancy. Because if anyone can help you, it's Clancy. (laughs) She didn't know how right she was. It's nice to meet somebody a little crazier than me. (laughs) So I go down to Montego Bay. To my sons and to make amends to the island. And I called Clancy. And Clancy said to me, Mary, write me a little letter. At that time there was no emails or anything. He said, write me a letter and tell me a little bit about your alcoholism and your your drinking. And uh, So I did. I sat down and I composed something. And a few days later I got a call. And it was Clancy. He said, Mary, I just got your, call, uh, your letter and I thought it was imminent. I call you, imme- you know, I have to call you immediately. And I thought, oh God, he's not gonna, he thinks I'm too crazy, you know. He said, I have something I have to tell you. I said, what is it? He said, you really shouldn't drink. (laughs) 
he was my rock. He was my rock. Because in Jamaica there was not a lot of sobriety. And it's a funny thing. God has a sense of humor. There was this doctor in Jamaica who had 25 years sobriety. And he had built um, a meeting room, an AA meeting room in his um, the bottom of his great house. He had this big old great house in Jamaica. And I wasn't feeling well sometimes, and I would talk about how my alcoholism was affecting me. And he'd say, that's not your alcoholism. That's a bit of alcohol that's still stranded inside of you that's causing you to feel this way. I said, why don't you listen to Clancy's tape? That is not alcohol, it's alcoholism. He said, look, I don't want to hear Clancy's tapes. I'm a doctor. He said, when I go, I'm going up to the States in two weeks' time, and there's going to be a wonderful speaker. And I will bring back to you from this medical meeting the tapes of the person who speaks, and then you will know. So he came back, and I never heard anything. Not a peep. Because the speaker who spoke at that medical convention was Clancy. (laughs) (laughs) Making amends to the island. Before I left Jamaica, I'd been selling real estate. And there was a very, one of the wealthiest men in Jamaica had been a good friend of mine. And even after I left my husband, he was still a good friend of mine. And he never condemned me for my alcoholism. And he had gi- I was selling real estate, and he'd given me a building to sell. And um, it was a beautiful building. And we put it on the market, and one day we had this big blitz, and we sold every, uh, every condominium there. And some of the people who came to give me money, they brought their mothers. And the money was cash money. I told you about this, Ralph, didn't I? I'd never spoken about it from the podium before. So anyway, the the money was all over their underwear and everything. <laughs> but that didn't matter. I didn't mind that. I was counting out the money. It was a lot of money. I don't. It was probably drug money, but it, I, that wasn't my business. And I took all this money and I gave it to the managing directors and I got a receipt. And we sold all these apartments in the space of a weekend because they were beautiful. A few weeks later, I went in and I saw the other real estate agents taking out the filing cabinets and the carpets and the tables. And I said, what's happened? They said the managing directors had left the island overnight with all the money that should have been held in escrow. Within half an hour, two gunmen came with guns to me. They said, you took our money. I said, but you have a receipt and it's not my name on it. And they said to me, yeah, but you took our money. We want the apartment or you're dead. You're dead me. So... I went to a lawyer, and I had him sue this good, good friend of mine who owned the apartment for specific performance, which meant that he had to forfeit the deposit on all these apartments. 
I should have been more vigilant because at the time it was Michael Manley and I knew people were leaving the island in droves. I had an idea these guys might be going, but I was drinking. So I wanted to go to that man afterwards and make amends. And when that man heard I was back in the island, he called me. He said, Mary, I hear you're sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, I am. He said, I'm having a dinner party for you tomorrow night. And I've asked people who still want to see you to come. And uh, he had a dinner party, and uh, he invited me. And he said that uh, what he said was cream always rises to the top. And he said he'd heard about the work I was doing in Alcoholics Anonymous from his son and other people who were in Toronto. And I got a chance to repay him because while I was on the island, there was somebody stealing from his business in Miami. And they sent me over to work. And I found out who it was. And I was able to save him a lot of money. So I got a chance to make amends there too. Um, the, the other thing was, you know, there's a little story I tell. Before I left the island, um, when I was drinking, there was a cricket team came to play the West Indy cricket team. They came for an English cricket team. And it was, must have been a particularly lucid night for me because the um, cricketer, the chief cricketer, he'd been knighted by the Queen. We shall call him Sir Cricketer. <laughs> um, Sir Cricketer asked me if I would attend, attend a function going on up in the hills for the visiting cricket team, and I said I would love to. So we went off up into the hills... And um, when we're walking in the door, what the host, the Jamaican host of this party was standing there. And the uh, Sir Cricketer said, um, thank you for having this function. You said I could bring someone, so I brought Mary. I don't know if you know Mary. He said, no, she's more famous than you, man. The word was infamous. I had done a lot of things and hurt a lot of people. And I went around, and eventually what I ended up doing was working with the poor people in Jamaica and, um, and making amends to the island, and then having my sons come back and live with me. So the making of amends is something that I actively do. I don't believe that being sober is enough amends I have to take the action. I am told that when I do this stuff, it will be the end of isolation from me and my fellows. I am told that at the end of doing this nine step, I will know a new happiness and a new freedom. I will not regret the past nor wish to close the door on it. I will understand the word serenity and I will know peace. It also says that I will end up finding out that God will do for me what I could not do for myself. And I truly believe that. What, what is needed here for me in the eighth step was forgiveness because I had to forgive everybody on my list and know that it wasn't what they did to me. It was about what I had done to them. And then in the ninth step, I am having to have willingness to go out there to face it so that never again do I have to work in the darkness, that I can walk in the sunlight, not afraid to see anybody I have to see, 
and be able to face the world. And that is what I give today to my children and my grandchildren. I have none of that sludge to take with me and to taint my relationships today. It's all gone. So that when I am with my grandchildren, when I am with my children, I have this, I like to think, clean spirit that will not psychically damage those that I love. And being aware still of the things I can do when under duress and knowing that I never want to stay there anymore. If for a minute I get into gossip, I am immediately contrite. Immediately contrite because I don't want that to come in and dark out my life. I'm going on now after this step and I'm going to be going into the 10th step and that is a constant with me and that's not, the 10th step is not for me to do. But by the time I have reached this 9th step, I have had part of that transformational experience that is promised to me and now I am excited and joyful. I have hope and I want it all. When Bill Wilson says Alcoholics Anonymous is not a success story, rather it is a chronicle of our colossal human failure turned to usefulness by the divine alchemy of a loving God. I was an utter and complete failure. I was a waste of good skin. I was of no use to man nor beast. I was about as dependable as a broken stick. But now I believe my mother is with me in spirit, happy to be with me, as are the family who are gone, and that I can go on and carry with me, as long as I am here, some semblance of light for them, who I know prayed and lit candles for me till they almost burned down the chapel. I am so grateful to be here. I am so grateful for what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, for people like Clancy who told me that I better mix, because if I start feeling different in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, then I am doomed. Because every now and then, as it was said, the answer to my loneliness is to isolate. I have that potential. The other thing Clancy taught me is kindness. I have never, ever known anyone as intrinsically kind. He comes off like he's a baddie. But he's the original softy from Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> and I have learned so much from him about how to live this life, how to be a giver, and how to care for people. And I'm so grateful for all my teachers. I have a sponsor today called Norma, and I need her more today than I've ever needed her. And uh, I love her very much. Uh, luckily, I also, too, have, I still can call Clancy when there's something I need to know. And for that, I am truly grateful. I thank God for AA. I thank God for the life I have today, for the loving children, my darling children who love me, and that I am able to be a good mother. I never wanted to be more than a good mother, and I am today. And I thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.